The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, will help thee, yea, will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. All Scripture is God-breathed, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship. Confess any known sins, if necessary, use of 1 John 1, 9, privacy of our priesthood, for preparation to study God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for the privilege we have as believers to come before Your throne of grace, that this is a unique ability in human history that each believer, every ordinary believer, is a priest to You and that we have immediate and direct access because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. His death, burial, and resurrection provided everything we need for our salvation and laid the groundwork for the unique spiritual life of this church age, which is based upon the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And Father, we pray that under His teaching ministry we might understand the things we study and be challenged by them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are making our way through the Old Testament in our Old Testament orientation series. Got it somewhat centered. Somebody came along here, I don't know who it was, put nice little rubber pads up here so it changed the orientation of everything. But now it won't slide. That's good. Whoever did that, I appreciate it. We are making our way through the study of the Old Testament, and we are going to look at wisdom literature this morning. Last two Sundays, we looked at the hymnic literature, the Psalms, and we talked about Hebrew poetry and the significance of Hebrew poetry. And before we begin looking at wisdom literature, I want to back up a minute and remind ourselves, remind us where we are in our study of the Old Testament. When we started off, we looked at Genesis 1, 26 and 27, where God created man and placed him in the garden. And at that point, I brought in something that was probably new to everybody here, and that was a reference to the secular covenant or treaty form known as the suzerain-vassal Treaty form. Suzerain refers to the great king, the great lord. The vassal refers to the servant nation, or we might call it even in today's vernacular, a client nation. And in the ancient world, what would happen is when a great king or emperor conquered a country, then he would impose this contract, this covenant upon that lesser power, and he would lay out certain stipulations. 
He would review, perhaps historically, what this great king had done to benefit this smaller country and the smaller power. And then he would lay out the stipulations that as long as you want to continue in this relationship, these are the requirements, these are, this is what you must do to fulfill the, your obligations on this side of the covenant. If you don't, then, then I, you will receive these punishments. If you do, then I will bless you in these additional ways. And it lays out the fact for us what it helps us to understand from the background of, of, of the culture of that time is that man is seen as the vicegerent of God to reign upon the earth as his representative. That is man's original function in the Garden of Eden. He is the image of God. That not only refers to his internal makeup, his immaterial makeup in his soul in terms of all of the components of the soul, the, the mind, self-consciousness, mentality, emotion, volition, consciousness, but it also indicates that this has a purpose. It's not just what it is, but what it's for. We are here for the purpose of representing God as His as His representative to the earth to rule and reign the earth in His place. Now, we must set this in the total context of Scripture because what is eventually going to happen in the millennial kingdom is that church-age believers, we who are believers today, will ultimately fulfill that in our resurrection bodies by coming back with Jesus Christ to rule and to reign over the earth. So you see once again that, that, as I pointed out before, the Bible almost functions like a, like a mirror. You take the cross in the middle, you fold it in half, and many of the themes and events that occur in the introduction to Genesis, what some people call protology. How's that for a fancy word? From the Greek word for beginnings or first, protology mirrors eschatology. And we can see this, this dynamic taking place that as Adam fell from this original position and became cursed, and now try, we still try to function in that servant role, in that vassal role, yet we're struggling with a creation that is cursed. We're struggling with a body that is cursed and a sin nature. And that is why Jesus has to come and exercise redemption, pay the price for sin. And then from the point of the cross on, you see how everything is better than it was in the Old Testament, and it continues to increase as God works out His redemptive plan. Now, keep that in mind when we come to wisdom literature, because one of the unique things about wisdom literature is it doesn't focus so much on Israel as Israel. There is some element of that, but not as much as you find in the Psalms or in the historical books, because wisdom it goes beyond simple is Israelology. It is that which is applicable to all saints, all believers from all time. Now, what do we mean by wisdom literature? Wisdom literature consists of four books in the Old Testament. Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs. That's the Hebrew title, Song of Songs. The English title is Song of Solomon. It is the Song of Songs which is written by Solomon according to the first verse. And so, the English picked up that, that title, Song of Solomon, but in the Hebrew, it is Song of Songs. Now, wisdom literature is a particular classification of literature. As I've said before, when you study any kind of document, as soon as you pick it up, you immediately classify You know what a, what an English, what a poem looks like, and you, you pick up a poem, and you know to expect certain things, that there will be rhyming, perhaps, that there will be a certain amount of imagery and metaphor and the use of hyperbole and that the way you interpret 
the words and the figures that are used in poetry is different to some degree from how you would interpret those same words if they were found in the context of a, of a legal document, let's say, or a work of, of fiction. You know that when you pick up certain kinds of fiction, you go down to uh, Barnes & Noble or Walden Books or one of the other bookstores and you walk the aisles, you know that if you pick up a mystery, that it's going to follow a certain format. And there's going to, you're going to have a, some kind of crime in the first two or three chapters, and then you're going to have a lot of red herrings throughout the book, and then there's going to be a revelation of the criminal in the last chapter, and it's going to be somebody you never expected because the one clue that the detective needed in order to find out who it was he knew about that you didn't. So you know that about a mystery. You pick up a, a romance novel, and you know to expect certain characteristics of a romance novel. Not having ever read a romance novel, I don't know what those <laughs> characteristics are. You pick up a, a historical novel, and you know that you expect certain things there because these literary types contain certain key characteristics. And you know how to interpret and how to understand what's going on in those literary types or what's called literary genres, because you know what those characteristics are. You've learned them over the progress of time. Well, the same thing is true here when we get into wisdom literature. It was a secular category of literature that is found all over the ancient Near East, and it was characterized by certain pithy sayings or proverbial sayings which were designed to provide instruction to people for successful living. So all kinds of people were writing proverbs in various different cultures. So wisdom literature combined a certain literary form, usually these are two-line sayings, with a specific kind of content. That content was designed to teach people how to live life successfully. In wisdom literature, the theme usually focuses on the basic questions of life that, that everyone struggles with. There's a universal uh, appeal here. That is why the wisdom literature rises above just simple Israelology in the Old Testament and, and just a relationship to Israel itself that goes beyond something like the Mosaic Law and has universal appeal. It deals with these basic questions like how to live your life with skill, how to find happiness in life, what is the, the meaning of existence, why are we here. That's what Ecclesiastes is all about. Solomon is trying to determine, why am I here? What's the purpose of life? How do I find real meaning and value and fulfillment in life? Wisdom literature struggles with the question of why is there suffering in the world? What's the purpose of uh, suffering? And, and why does evil exist? If God is good and God is omnipotent, how can, how, why does evil exist? And is it simply the result of uh, punishment for sin or is there some greater purpose to it? And uh, why, why do we have adversity? And this, of course, is covered in, in Job. The uh, search for truth is also evidenced in wisdom literature, how to find truth, and of course, how to just find success in life, in, in all the affairs of life, in business, in family, in, in child rearing, in leadership. All of these different elements that, that every area that makes up life is found in Proverbs. Tremendous collection of literature in, in Proverbs. Yet, at the very core, of all this literature, and you have different types from Ecclesiastes to Job to, to Proverbs, underneath all of that, if you probe beneath the surface, you discover that there is, in the, in the biblical wisdom literature, a profound theology. By theology, I mean a, there's a profound understanding of who God is and what He has done. And He is 
what undergirds everything in wisdom literature is that God is the one who created all things. He is the sovereign creator of everything and that this creation is intricate, it's complex, and that everything in it reveals a, an extreme degree of skill, creativity, knowledge, and attention to the most minute detail. And that if man is to live successfully, he must understand the principles that God has put into, into the universe, what we would sometimes call establishment principles, but they go beyond that, really. At the core, there are many principles here that believer and unbeliever can equally apply, but there are also elements that go far beyond just anything that an unbeliever could do. And that if we are to live a life that is successful, then we must learn what these principles are and align our thinking to them. It's the same thing that we find in, in the New Testament in Romans 12, not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And that's the challenge of Proverbs. Proverbs is one of the most, I think, one of the most important books that we can study. And unfortunately, I think it's sometimes neglected. It's, uh, it takes a different approach to study it and to teach it. But it is something that I think that, and I'll have some practical guidelines at the end that you can do in your family that I think would revolutionize some of your family uh, training time. And as you look at, as we look at the um, wisdom literature, what we discover is the that following the path of wisdom, learning wisdom, and applying wisdom is ultimately the only way to become intimate with the God who created everything, and to know Him, and to know His will. Now there are, in our overall understanding of knowledge and learning, there's a tremendous uh, theory of education in the psalm. There's a lot of repetition, memory, things that are not in vogue today and have been discounted as, as not good for education anymore. But, uh, but there's a lot to learn. There are a lot of different words, and I don't want to take the time. It would take a study of, of several weeks to go through all the key words for wisdom, understanding, knowledge, and look at them. But just to plug it into our frame of reference, what we have is three key concepts in the Scripture. Academic knowledge, which is represented by the Greek word gnosis. And this is the word that Paul uses in, I believe it's in 1 Corinthians 8.1, where he says knowledge makes arrogant, or knowledge puffs up in the old in the old King James. And you have to understand that's gnosis, that's not epinosis, it's not hachma there. And so many people will, when they look at somebody who goes to a church like ours, where there's a lot of emphasis on teaching and learning and, and knowledge, they often make some kind of disparaging remark and somebody who knows a little scripture but doesn't understand it mouths off with 1 Corinthians 8.1, well, don't you know that knowledge puffs up, so let's just enjoy our experience with God. And, of course, that's a misunderstanding of, of the process. In the Scriptures, there's a process of learning. First, you learn academic knowledge. That's how you learn anything in life, whether it's mathematics, whether it has to do with, you know, you think about mathematics. When you were a kid, you learned all the basics. One plus one equals two. You learned addition, subtraction, multiplication. And it might not have been for several years before you really had a practical application. You started having to do things like balance a checkbook and, and uh, figure out your taxes and all of those wonderful things that, that make up adult life. But you have a vast reservoir. Every one of us has a vast reservoir of academic knowledge no matter what your field is, whether your field is computers, whether your field is auto mechanics, whether your field is construction, whatever it is, you have a vast pool of, of 
of just academic knowledge. Some of it's proficient, some of it's not proficient, but it is just a small percentage of that reservoir of academic knowledge from which you pull applicational knowledge. You always hear somebody who hasn't thought very much, or they repeat something they thought sounded good, say, well, if we just applied all that we know, let's quit learning so much and just go back and apply all that we know. Well, that's not true in any arena of life. That is a very superficial and inadequate way to look at knowledge. We apply only a small percentage of what we know in any field. I think that's how knowledge functions. We, we, the more we learn, the more we're able to apply. And we always know, in terms of academic knowledge, a vast amount more than we have that is actually usable applicational knowledge. Well, when we learn doctrine under the filling of God the Holy Spirit, we learn it first as academic knowledge, as gnosis, and then under the filling of the Holy Spirit, when we choose to believe it and make it, make it ours, then the Holy Spirit transfers it into the innermost part of our soul, the cardia, and there it becomes epinosis, which is usable knowledge. That's the second category of knowledge. And then the third category is what we see in the Psalms, which is wisdom, which goes a step further, and that's hochmah. Now, if I were to graph this out, it would look like this. First, you have gnosis. This is just academic knowledge. And then, under the filling of God the Holy Spirit, is that's transferred into the innermost thinking of your soul, what the Bible calls the heart or the cardia. There it becomes epinosis or usable doctrine. Now, you may know a lot of, of gnosis. And this is typical. You get, get with some seminary student and they have a tremendous reservoir of academic knowledge about the Scriptures. But what happens when somebody goes to seminary is they accelerate their gnosis and their epinosis lags way behind. And sometimes you'll run into uh, men that have been through seminary and they've confused gnosis with epinosis and then you're in a lot of trouble. Epinosis is usable doctrine and the meaning of hokmah sort of overlaps that. In some senses, Hokmah is usable doctrine. In other places, Hokmah is used doctrine. It is that which is regularly used to produce something. And we'll see why I say that as we get into this study. But I just want to start off with showing you the relationship of these key words. There are many more words that are used in Scripture to define the learning process, but we'll just start off uh, with these. Now, when we look at Proverbs, we need to remember that Proverbs was written as a father who was a king prepared his son to be a wise ruler. By application, we need to remember that every one of us, as believer priests in the church age, is under preparation to be a wise ruler as a servant king in the millennial, millennial reign of Jesus Christ. So Proverbs, therefore, provide the training manual for believers in preparation to be wise kings. And in that sense, I think that Proverbs is one of those, because it's designed and was written as the training of a father to his son, I think that Proverbs provides the model for family training for parents to children. And if you're parents here, you can use this. There are many different things that you can do with the Proverbs as a training framework for teaching your children practical applications of Scripture. So Proverbs is written to prepare a ruler. The Song of Songs, 
addresses marital love and the fidelity of the servant of God, the ruler. Job and Ecclesiastes speak more to the ultimate meaning of human existence. Job faces the problem of the existence of evil, suffering, and adversity. And from Job we learn how the servant is to handle adversity under the sovereignty of God without uh, getting out from under the authority of God and blaming God and cursing God and understanding his role within the invisible angelic conflict. So Job explains how the servant of God is to handle suffering and what his role is in the angelic conflict. And Ecclesiastes presents the flip side. Ecclesiastes is the portrait of the man who has rejected God, the man who is operating on pure cosmic thinking and trying to solve the problems of life and find meaning and value in life completely apart from a relationship to God. So in, in, in Ecclesiastes, we learn from the, from the dark side, the negative side, that the servant who fails to relate properly to the great king is going to end up frustrated, depressed, discouraged, and as if life itself has no meaning. Existence for, the, for that person becomes empty and, and unbearable because they have forgotten that their primary purpose is to live out life in relationship to the great king. Having said all that, by way of introduction, we need to take some time to look at the importance of wisdom and the role of wisdom within the framework of this body of literature. So the first thing we'll look at is the meaning of wisdom. What is wisdom? Now, when you think of wisdom, perhaps, you've already front-loaded your thinking with a lot of baggage. And we need to change our, our frame of reference because for most of us, our background for understanding the concept of wisdom has more to do with Greek philosophy, with, with uh, Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, than it does with the Hebrew or Jewish concept of wisdom. In the Old Testament, the key word for wisdom is the word hachma. Hachma looks like this. Now, this always confuses people when they look at Hebrew because this little vowel point here is normally an A. I always have to make this point because there's some that just continuously mispronounce this. And when it's in a closed, unaccented syllable, it is always an O. That's one of those minor little words in Hebrew, rules in Hebrew that people forget. Hokmah. H, or really it's more of a CH, very guttural, C-H-O-K-M-A-H. Hokmah. Various, all of the various forms of chokmah, the nouns, the verbs, all relate to the meaning of, of wisdom. The verb is hacham, to be wise. The, the noun is chokmot, wisdom. And these are used frequently in the Old Testament and they are particularly prominent in Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. For example, this word in all of its cognates is found in these three books 189 times out of the 346 occurrences in the Old Testament. That means that more than half, 54.6% of the times that this word occurs, occurs in these three books. That's why they're called wisdom literature. It is the prominent concept. So let's look at a definition of wisdom. Wisdom, in the Jewish sense, refers to skills in relation to the working of crafts, the giving of advice or shrewd counsel, the managing of people or tasks, or 
intellectual acumen, intellectual skill and ability. But the key concept is skill, so that if you've been working at a craft, let's say you work with your hands, maybe it's in carpentry, maybe it's uh, on automobiles, maybe it's with furniture, whatever it might be, if you have a level of skill with that, that's what the Bible would call chokhmah. If you work with, uh, with computers and you are adept with computers and understand all the programming and systems and everything like that, the Bible would call that chokhmah. If you're a musician and you have skill with the, with the piano or, or violin or organ or whatever the instrument might be, that's chokhmah. And it's not just intellectual. It is skill. That's the basic idea, the ability to take something and make something beautiful and attractive from it. The word is used a variety of different ways in the uh, Old Testament. Tailors, who, The tailors who made the priestly garments for Aaron were said to possess chokhmah in Exodus 28.3. The tabernacle workers, the metal workers, the stone cutters, the wood carvers, the embroiderers, embroiderers the weavers and designers, uh, all were said to possess chokhmah in Exodus 35.30 through 36.2. It's used a number of different times. The women who spun the yarn and linen to make the fabric for the tabernacle all had chokhmah in Exodus 35:25 and 26. Hiram of Tyre, who was hired by Solomon to work on the temple, was called a skilled craftsman. He had chokhmah in bronze. He was able to work in bronze, 1 Kings 7, 13 through 14. The various artisans and craftsmen for the temple were likewise said to possess chokhmah in 1 Chronicles 22.15 and in 2 Chronicles 2.7. Interesting, one phrase in Psalm 107.27 refers to some seamen, some sailors who were lost at sea and it's translated in, in English that they were at their wit's end. Literally, what it says in the Hebrew is that all of their chokhmah departed. Their skill departed. They, they no longer had skill to deal with the, the adversity that they faced. Uh, women are said to be skillful in mourning in Jeremiah 9.17. Chokhmah not only referred to the ability or skill in craftsmanship, but it also dealt with skill in advising or administration. The elders of the tribe were said to possess chokhmah in Deuteronomy 1.13 and 15. They knew how to administer and how to lead. So we see from this an indication that chokhmah is necessary for good leadership. Leadership in the home, Leadership at work is vital for every believer to develop this because we're going to have leadership roles in the Millennial Kingdom. Joseph and Daniel had Chokhmah. Joshua had Chokhmah. King Solomon, of course, is renowned for his, his wisdom. So the biblical concept, what we see from this is the biblical concept of wisdom is vastly different from the Greek concept that has, been, that has dominated Western civilization. At this point, just a side note, we live in an age where people really are, are, are dumping negatively on Western European traditions. I mean, we're the bad boys of history now. What, people, what that really is, if you think about this, is an attack on Christianity. Western civilization before Christ, before uh, Constantine adopted Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire in the 4th century, that, that was pagan. I mean, it was the Druids and the tree worshippers. Sounds familiar. And um, all of the uh, po polytheism that was going on, fertility worship, that too has a modern ring to it, doesn't it? And it was only as a result of 
Christianity coming in and and changing the nature of the of Western culture that produced what we know now as Western culture. Of course, you know there, there's still those who go back to the to the Greeks and the and the um, and the Romans in terms of philosophy. But there's this there was a merger, a compromise, as it were, between uh, Aristotelian thought, Platonic thought, and Christianity. So that what Western civilization really is is a product of of Christianity to one degree or another. That does. I'm not saying that everybody's a believer or that it is the highest expression of Christianity and culture, but that to attack Western civilization is really to attack what made it what it is as distinct from from all the other civilizations which are rooted in paganism, and that is Christianity. Always remember, culture is ultimately is the ultimately the outworking of religious presupposition. Always remember that culture is the outworking of religious presuppositions, whether you're talking about a, a meta-culture, I think that's the term they use related to meta-narrative, a huge culture like the culture of the U.S. or the culture of Russia, culture of Iran or China, but our small culture, the culture of your home, how you do things in your home, the value system that's there, uh, your, your procedures, your policies, all reflect to one degree or another your value system, which in turn reflects your assumptions about life and Christianity and God and, and ethics and everything else. So culture is the outworking, ultimately, of your religious presuppositions. And today that is what is under attack and something that's not understood by many people because they want to treat culture as if it's some sort of non-religious, isolated absolute that, that exists in and of itself. But constantly our culture should be challenged by biblical Christianity. That's just an aside. Just no extra charge this morning for, for that point. So we have seen that wisdom refers to the skill. It can refer to skills working in craft, skills in giving advice or counsel. Uh, administration, management is related to wisdom or intellectual acumen. The second point is the source of wisdom. What is the source of wisdom? Proverbs encourages man to pursue wisdom with all that he has. We are to listen for wisdom. Proverbs 1.33 and Proverbs 2.2 But he who listens to me... Wisdom is continuously personified as a human being in the Proverbs. So when you read the Proverbs, wisdom is pictured as a person who is calling us, who is constantly inviting us and challenging us to come to wisdom. And here we see this especially in the first few chapters of Proverbs. He who listens to me, that is wisdom speaking, he who listens to me shall live securely and shall be at ease from the dread of evil. Make your ear attentive to wisdom. That's a command. That's not an option. Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart, that is the innermost thinking of your soul, to understanding. Notice the synonymous parallelism in Proverbs 2.2, how the second line mirrors the same idea as the first line. We are to acquire wisdom. We are commanded to acquire wisdom, Proverbs 4, 6-7. Do not forsake her and she will guard you. Love her and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. And with all your acquiring, get understanding. Notice that second proverb is an example of synthetic parallelism. The second line picks up the idea of acquisition that's in the first line and then develops it a little further. The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. What does that mean? 
with all your acquiring, get understanding. So it is pushing you. Notice it's mental. It's thinking. It's not emoting. It's not sitting back and being sentimental about God and isn't Jesus wonderful. It is thought that is involved in all of this. We are to love wisdom. Proverbs 8.17, wisdom says, I love those who love me and those who diligently seek me will find me. We are to esteem or value it above everything else. Wisdom is to be our highest priority in life. Proverbs 4.8, prize her and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. It will always come back to benefit us if we have our souls flooded with the wisdom of Bible doctrine. And we are to seek wisdom. We are to seek wisdom. Again, Proverbs 8.17, I love those who love me and those who diligently seek me will find me. Now, I quoted that earlier when I said that we are to love wisdom, but we are to seek it. And the word here is very interesting. It is the Hebrew word, shahar, looks like this, shahar, S-H-A-C-H, another guttural, A-R, shahar, and it's a P-A-L participle here, and it means to seek diligently, to seek eagerly. It originally had the connotation of seeking early, getting up early in the morning and making this the priority. It indicates that nothing takes priority. It's, it's an energetic. It is somebody who, I don't care what else I do in life, I'm going to get my doctrine today. I'm going to make sure I listen to a tape. I'm going to be a Bible class tonight because I know that no matter what else I get in life, if I don't get doctrine in my soul to be able to develop the capacity for life and the decision-making that is necessary in life, then when it's all over with, it's worthless. This is a person who just every day wakes up and realizes the sole reason they're here is to live for God, and that means they have to learn everything they can to know God. It is a dynamic concept which should challenge every one of us to figure out what our priorities really are. Now, this leads to the next question, which is where is this wisdom to be found? Job asked this question uh, a couple of times. He said in Job 28.20, where then does wisdom come from and where is the place of understanding? Earlier, Job had said that, that wisdom belongs to God in Job 12.13. He is wisdom, God's wisdom, Job says, is profound. Proverbs tells us that God possessed wisdom in the beginning. He created the earth in wisdom, Proverbs 3.19, and He counts the clouds in His wisdom, Job 38.37. Therefore, wisdom is more than some humanly conceived trait. It is not just academic knowledge. It's not interesting facts. But it has to do with understanding the very core dynamics that make up the universe. It is a divine enabling. It's an ability to cope with life, to handle all of life's problems, and to succeed without converting adversity into stress. We see the emphasis on the priority of wisdom in Proverbs 1. Turn with me to the first chapter of Proverbs. The first chapter of Proverbs. Proverbs 1, verse 20. We'll briefly examine the Proverbs 1, 20 to... 33. See, what happens with most of us, life's going along pretty well, and we think, well, I'll, I'll, I'll be at church on Sunday morning, and maybe I'll be at church this Wednesday, maybe not, and, and we, we, we easily slip into 
a, a standard of operating where we think where we're complacent about the word and learning the word, and then all of a sudden a big catastrophe comes along in life. We don't know what it is. Maybe you lose your job. Maybe it's a health problem. Maybe a child dies, or you get that dreaded knock in the middle of the night, and your 17-year-old just got put in jail for heroin possession. You never know what it might be, but all of a sudden, God has designed the big test to come in your life, and now it's here, and it's too late to prepare. See, the thing is, we have to prepare when things are going easy, because when things get rough, it's too late, and that's the point of Proverbs 1, 20 and following. Look at verse 20. Wisdom shout. In the streets, I want you to notice the imagery here. That this is not just, okay, here's doctrine, come and get it. There is a demand, there is an insistence that you need this, come and get it now. It's not simply just an, uh, another option of the many options in life. Wisdom shouts in the streets. She lifts her voice in the square at the head of the noisy streets. She cries out at the entrance of the gates in the city. She utters her sayings. In other words, all around town, you see wisdom. God is always going to make doctrine available to the believer who's positive. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter if you're here in Connecticut. It doesn't matter if you're in uh, Poland. It doesn't matter if you're in uh, South Africa, especially today with Internet and tape recordings and everything else that's available. Anywhere you are on the planet, you can get just an overwhelming amount of doctrine. I've never seen so many books published, Christian titles, good titles, old classics republished. You can get more than enough just everywhere. So it's not an issue of I don't have time or I'm too busy or my job causes me to travel a lot or I just have so many demands at home. You have tape recorders. You have cassette players in your car. You have the Internet. You, uh, and what, you, you got Palm, uh, the, 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 what are they, the individual handheld computers now. And we're going to be putting out doctrine. And we're converting a lot of our doctrine that's out on the Internet. We're going to be putting it in a Palm Format So you can download that on your palm and take that with you and study while you're traveling on an airplane or riding in the car or whatever you're doing so that this is easily available. Wisdom is shouting in the street. It's always there. There's no excuse for not spending time learning wisdom. How long, verse 22, how long, O naive ones, will you love simplicity? That's an insult in the Scriptures to be naive. That, that is like being stupid. It's, a, it's an insult because there's no excuse for being naive. Naive is the person who doesn't understand reality because they don't understand doctrine. Only by understanding God and God's plan are we oriented to reality. And if we're, we're naive, we're living divorced from reality and we're living in our own world of self-deception. How long, O oh naive ones, will you love simplicity? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing. Notice this is another example of synthetic parallelism. Each line builds upon the previous one. How long, O naive ones, will you love simplicity? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing and fools hate. Notice it goes from loving simplicity to delighting in scoffing, to cracking jokes, to making negative comments about the Word. And, and scoffers delight themselves in scoffing and fools hate knowledge. Now, knowledge here is academic understanding of Scripture. So the knowledge here is understanding the details of the Word of God and understanding doctrine. So it is a, a fool who hates knowledge. I love the way the Bible describes fool. I remember getting set back a little bit a few years ago in a conversation, and I'm just embarrassed that I didn't think of it. And there were three or four of us that were talking about the whole creation-evolution issue. 
And one, uh, and we were all believers. In fact, two, one, both, two of us were seminary trained, and one of the other seminary trained guys made the comment and was talking about in relationship to uh, one of the uh, top evolutionists. I can't remember who it was right now, but said, "Well, these guys are just brilliant." And this, and the one person in the group who was not a trained, trained uh, seminary student or trained theologian made the comment. But remember what Romans one said: professing to be wise. They became fools. See, if you reject what we'll see here when we get to the last point is that creation under the whole doctrine of biblical creation undergirds all the wisdom statements. And the issue is if you reject doctrine, you reject divine viewpoint, you reject creation, creationism, you're a fool, the Bible says. doesn't matter how many degrees you have. It doesn't matter how high your IQ is. doesn't matter how smart you are. The issue is whether or not you align your thinking with the Word of God because that's reality. That's where wisdom is. So the Scripture points to the wise person not on the basis of IQ or academic achievement or grades, but on the basis of understanding God's will, God's plan, and God's purposes and living consistently with Him. That is the wise person. That is the person who is developing a life of wisdom. Verse 23, "...turn to my reproof," wisdom says, Behold, I will pour out My Spirit upon you. I will make My words known to you. In other words, you can't use I don't understand it as an excuse. It's too deep for Me. Wisdom will make it clear. It's that the more you pursue trying to understand the Word, the more God will make it clear to you. But if you're not putting forth the effort first to understand God's Word, to be in Bible class, to listen, to study, to try to see if two or three of your brain cells will somehow connect and generate a spark then the Holy Spirit isn't going to illuminate your mind to understand it because He makes it understandable, but He doesn't understand it for us. He's, not, he's going to put it in our mouth, but we have to chew it. He's not going to chew it up and swallow it for us. Behold, I will put out My Spirit on you. I will make My words known to you because I called and you refused. I stretched out My hand and no one paid attention. And you neglected all My counsel and did not want My reproof. Listen, this is the result. I will even laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When the bottom falls out, when your marriage collapses, when the family collapses, when your finances collapse, when your retirement plan goes under, I'm going to laugh at your calamity. It's too late then. You're not going to be able to handle the adversity with doctrine because it's too late by then. I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm, And your calamity comes on like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come on you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they shall not find me. See, how many times as a pastor I've seen people who just treat doctrine complacently and then the bottom falls out and they hit adversity and they come and and, and it's too late at that point. And they try to to make up for lost time and it it takes time to grow and develop and build spiritually. It does not happen quickly. There are no drive through windows where you can get a take-home doctrinal meal that is going to satisfy your problems for that day. It, is, it involves an entire mindset, an entire frame of reference that has to be built over years, line upon line, precept upon precept. It doesn't just happen. Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they shall not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose. Notice the emphasis on volition. 
doesn't matter where you grew up. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter what happened to you. If you were abused, if you weren't abused, if you're educated, uneducated, if you were uh, impoverished or wealthy, it's irrelevant. The issue is, do you choose to fear the Lord and learn wisdom or not? Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, they would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof. So they shall eat of the fruit of their own way. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. It's the consequences of bad decisions. So they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. For the waywardness of the naive shall kill them. It's self-destructive. Later on in the Proverbs, twice it says, there's a way that seems right to man, but the ends thereof are death. But he who listens to me shall live securely and shall be at ease from the dread of evil. And that's exactly what was stated uh, earlier in the, in the Proverbs. Okay, the priority of wisdom is to get it now because when the time for application comes, it's too late. Fifth point. The prerequisite for wisdom is the fear of the Lord. This is more than just a simple attitude of respect for God. All kinds of people can have respect for God, but this is much more than that. This is foundational to understanding wisdom. It goes beyond just just simple respect. There is a sense of, of almost dread, of awe, because you know deep in your soul that if you don't don't absorb this, this knowledge, this doctrine into your soul so that it, it permeates all your decision making, that something catastrophic, either in time or in eternity, is going to happen. In eternity, it would be loss of rewards of the judgment. Use that phrase is used 14 times in Proverbs. It is used in Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's the starting point, is respecting God. Understand it's part of authority orientation. It's part of submission to His will and His plan and His purposes. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and fools despise wisdom and instruction, specifically wisdom and instruction from the Word. Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. This is the starting point, is to understand God. And we're going to see that when we get into our study in the second hour as we start a study of the doctrine of the Trinity. Is We have to understand who God is, what He is, and who He is in terms of His essential being because this in turn has implications for everything in reality. Proverbs refers to the concept of fearing the Lord in some way, way or another over 22 times. In Ecclesiastes, the cognates for the noun Yahweh, which means to fear, are used six times. They are to revere God, 3.14, were to stand in awe of God in Ecclesiastes 5.7. The uh, person is to fear God in 7.18. To be, we are to be reverent before God. So the conclusion of Ecclesiastes is that having tried everything in the frantic search for happiness to find meaning in life from all the details of life, the writer of Hebrews concludes that the purpose of man is to fear God. That's the starting point of wisdom. And it includes at least the concept of awe, respect, a sense of dread, and putting God first. So for definition, fearing God means to acknowledge his superiority over man, to recognize his deity, and thus respond in awe, humility, worship, 
love, trust, and obedience. To fear God means that we acknowledge and recognize His superiority over us. We recognize His deity and we respond in awe, humility, worship, love, trust, and obedience. Fearing the Lord is a key concept throughout the Old Testament, so that tells us that this is the basic attitude and basic orientation of the soul of the person who is pursuing that servant characteristic. We go back to the Susan Vassal Treaty form. Man is created to be God's representative. Adam fell in the garden, and then there's the flood, and then there was the collapse at Babel, and God works a new program by calling out a new people for his name with Abram. And Abraham is again given a covenant and through, through the nation Israel. They're going to fulfill, at least temporarily, that role as the vassal to the servant. They are to serve God. They are the servant nation. And they are to be characterized by this. So it's no surprise to find the concept of fearing the Lord as a key concept throughout all of the Old Testament. When Abraham obeyed God's directive to sacrifice Isaac, God said, now I know that you fear God in Genesis 22.12. Job, who lived at about that same time, was said to fear God in Job 1.1 and Job 2.3. Joseph told his brothers in Genesis 42.18, I fear God. The Hebrew midwives who refused to slaughter all of the babies feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. The Israelites, when they saw God's power parting the waters of the Red Sea and destroying the Egyptian soldiers, feared the Lord and put their trust in Him in Exodus 14.31. When Moses sought leaders, one of the key qualities they had to have was that they feared God in Exodus 18.21. After Moses gave the Ten Commandments, he said that fearing God would keep them from sinning in Exodus 20.20. Deuteronomy, Moses continuously challenged the Israelites to fear the Lord in Deuteronomy 4.10, Deuteronomy 5.29. I can't, I'm not going to slow down on these. You can get them now or get the tape. 5.29, That's a lot of references to fearing the Lord. That's the key concept they needed. The Israelites were also responsible to communicating that value to their children, and we have seen that they failed to do that, and the subsequent generation collapsed, and we'll study that in more detail when we get to our study of Judges. So fearing God was also associated with obeying the commands of the law, with serving Him, and with loving Him. References to fearing the Lord appear in connection with all the major events in Israel's history. When they crossed the Jordan River and entered the Promised Land in Joshua 2.24. In Joshua's farewell address at the renewal of the covenant in 24.14 before he died, he again enjoins the nation to fear God. Samuel repeated the injunction when he gave his farewell speech to the nation in 1 Samuel 12.14. Solomon emphasizes it in his prayer of dedication for the temple in 1 Kings 8.40. It is mentioned in in association with several of the better kings of Israel, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, all feared the Lord. And it is a major theme in all of the prophets. So from that we see this concept of fearing the Lord runs from Genesis to Malachi throughout the Old Testament and is a core concept for those who are to 
who trust the Lord. And then finally, we see that wisdom is intimately associated with creation theology. For example, Proverbs 3, 19-20, we read, By wisdom the Lord laid the earth's foundation. It refers to the skill, the beauty, the intricacy of everything in the creation, down to, my, uh, to, to subatomic particles and uh, the microcellular level. By wisdom the Lord laid the earth's foundation by Understanding, he set the heavens in place. By his knowledge, the deeps were divided and the clouds let drop the dew. And then in Psalm 104, 24, and there are several psalms that are also wisdom psalms, we read, How many are your works, O Lord, in wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. So the entire ecosystem, as originally created, has an interrelationship based on God's wisdom. In Proverbs chapter 8, wisdom is personified as being with God. It could be a picture of the mind of Christ even as, as the second person of the Trinity because we know from the New Testament that it's Jesus Christ who carries out the creative decree of God. In Proverbs 8, wisdom is personified as being with God when he set the heavens in place in Proverbs 8:27. So what we see from all of this is that wisdom is foundational to living a successful life. Therefore, we need to pay attention to what is in these particular books. Now, Job, Job is the first of the wisdom books. We don't know when Job was written. The author's unknown. The date's unknown. In fact, the time is unknown. We're not sure when. We don't even know where the, where the land of Uz existed, where Job lived. But we assume that this probably took place between, sometime between the Tower of Babel and the call of Abram. Nobody knows for sure, so that's just speculation. But the fact is that Job has universal application and it answers the question of why is there evil, adversity, and suffering in the world. And it gives us that insight at the very beginning of the book. Now, Job does not know what's going on in Job 1. Turn with me and we'll look briefly at Job, his first chapter. Job's problem is that he loses everything and he's challenged to just curse God and die, but Job won't do it. He finally gets frustrated with God and angry with God and demands God to answer him and explain why, but he never curses God. He does get out of fellowship, and he does have a degree of failure, but he never curses God. But God never answers his question. Never once does God explain to Job why he has suffered. What he does say is, Job, I am your God. Trust me in all things. That's all that matters. And Job's comment is, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And in the first chapters, we see the what's happening. God through the Holy Spirit, Revelation pulls back the curtain on the heavens and we see what transpires in verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. So we see that the term sons of God refers to all the angels, demons as well as, as uh, holy angels. And Satan comes, so there's this periodic, periodic convocation of the, of the uh, demons and all the angelic hosts before the throne room of God. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. So he's out cruising, looking for victims. And the Lord says, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. So from that we infer that Job is a fairly mature believer. As a mature believer, he is going to go through a category of testing called evidence testing. 
where his life is going to demonstrate to the angels in heaven as well as to man that God is indeed gracious and that his plan is good and perfect and wonderful. And so Satan says, does Job fear God for nothing? This is his insult here. Nobody worships you. They're all in it for what you're going to give them. Nobody does it just because you're God. And um, you've, you've made a hedge about him. You've protected him. You've blessed him. You've given him material possessions. He's wealthy. He's like Bill Gates. You know, nobody was wealthier than Job in the ancient world. He had it all. And uh, Satan says, you know, if you take it all away from him, he's just going to curse you. So God says, okay, you can, uh, you can test him. God gives permission to Satan in verse 12. And so from 13 down through 20, we see all of the things that Job loses. His, his livestock are plundered by foreign raiders. His servants are slaughtered. His sheep are destroyed by a natural disaster. All of his family, all of his material possessions and family are wiped out in a single day. He loses everything except his wife. Might have regretted that the way she handled things. But. And through all that, at the end, through all this, verse 22, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. So Satan is frustrated. He says, well, let me, let me attack him. So now he has the health test in the second chapter, and then he has the friendship test following that, where his three friends come, with friends like Job, who needs enemies. Their problem is they don't understand enough doctrine to come in out of the woods. They have, they're like most Christians. They have a simplistic, superficial view of suffering, and they think, well, the reason you're suffering is because you've done something bad. And Job knows that he's upright before God, and so the rest of the book is, is this dialogue between his three friends and Job, and then Job's uh, confrontation with God and God's response where he says, Job, I'm God, your creature. We maintain that distinction. I will do what's best. You don't need to know the answers. Your job is simply to trust me. You have enough doctrine to do that, so do it. And in the end, Job did, and then God restored to Job everything that he had before it was lost. So that is the issue in wisdom literature, is to understand how God works. Proverbs states it best in the opening verses, to know wisdom and instruction and to discern the sayings of understanding. We are to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise knowledge. This is our purpose. Now, one thing that you can do, I mentioned this earlier, is a great thing to study is to go through the Psalms, and if, I mean the Proverbs, and if you look at the Proverbs and the way they're laid out, the first nine chapters are the teacher's introduction. And then starting in verse, starting in verse, uh, or in chapter 10, there are collections of Proverbs. Each one's independent. Each verse covers a different subject and there's a vast array of subjects and what you can do this is a great thing for and then there's followed the last four chapters of four appendices but for you fathers this is a great thing for you to do in family training with your kids is to have your kids and you do it as well start reading in Proverbs 10 you can go earlier as well there's many good Proverbs in the first nine chapters and start categorizing the Proverbs according to subject matter and build a some, something like a family training notebook where you take all the different categories of the Proverbs and then line them out according to subject matter and learn what does God say? What is the mind of the Lord on all these different practical areas of life? And it's a great way to approach many things to generate conversations, talking with your kids about all kinds of issues in life, and it's all centered around doctrine. So that's just 
a little practical application from all of this. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for this time together, for this tremendous wisdom that you have given us in Scripture, that we as believers, because we possess the Scriptures which are the mind of Christ, we possess access to the wisdom of the ages, the wisdom that undergirds all creation. Father, we pray that as we continue our study of your Word and our Christian growth, that we may be challenged not to treat doctrine lightly, but to make it the priority of our lives, that we may be successful in our Christian life, that we may stand before you at the judgment seat of Christ and hear that we are have been good and faithful servants. Now, Father, we pray if there's anyone here this morning uncertain of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make that certain. Salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. You don't have to join a church. You don't have to change your life. You don't have to do anything because Christ did it all at the cross. There he paid the penalty for every single sin in our life, past, present, and future. So all we need to do is trust him. It's a free gift, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Father, we pray for those who are believers here that we will be challenged by the doctrines of your word that we have studied today. In Jesus' name, amen.